Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode number 95. 95. Wow, you know, these things really stack up. So, pretty cool, number 95. And if you have any questions or comments, I usually put this at the end, but I'll put it up front too. Uh, You can always email me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com and I will answer you in the next podcast. Well as you know this podcast is in three parts. One is political as it affects the Second Amendment even obliquely so. The next is uh, kind of a critique of gun culture things that we see out there or hear out there. And uh, the last is my favorite, which is question and answers. So if you have a question for the Q&A portion, go ahead and send it to that address that I just uh, gave you a few minutes ago. So let's get down to it. Uh, First thing, of course, everyone knows Rush Limbaugh, you know, the greatest um, is gone. Um, He was the Michael Jordan of broadcasting he was the, you know, Bob Mathias of, of broadcasting, whatever, whatever great name of person at the pinnacle of their, their sport you want to put in. That, that's what he was. He was the, he was the Audie Murphy. There you go. He was the Audie Murphy of broadcasing. Uh, Rush Limbaugh revived. AM radio was dying. And I, I know this because I had uh, relatives that lived in Sacramento where Rush got his start. He got a start there, uh, just local radio, and his his uh, program was so provocative it grew into a national uh, phenomenon and and generated you know millions and millions of dollars in advertising. Got people listening to the radio, really helped tie up and explain some of the things that were happening in the country, and you know uh, it was. Whether people liked him or not, or agreed with him or not, they have to admit he was he was probably the most influential person in broadcasting. He, he you know, I mean, Edward R. Murrow would probably is probably not as big as Rush Limbaugh. That that's just the way that was. Um, he even started this podcasting would not exist today, even though it'd be technologically possible without a Rush Limbaugh who who broke the mold, got on and for three hours a day talked to his audience. And that's that's really what podcasting is. We don't broadcast over radio, we do it over the internet, but you know, it's really the same thing. So it, it's a big loss that he's gone. Um, I won't comment on the trash people who even the day he died were calling him a racist and everything else. And um, you know, that that was just that was just horrible. That was absolutely horrible. But it goes down into something that, um, you know, is kind of related. And that is, who are the good people and who are the bad people? And we go back to, who are the good people? The people who organized the Tea Party grassroots movements, you know, and and respectfully uh, tried to affect some political change when they saw the country was going way too far left in the Obama years. Or are the, you know, and, and are the bad people the ones that weaponized the IRS, among other things, to go after these groups based on their beliefs, not anything else, but based on their beliefs? Who are the good people? Who are the bad people? Carry that up into 2012. Who are the good people? Who are the bad people? Um, we had American citizens who were under siege in Benghazi. We had guys who were security contractors who, who saved the day, suffered casualties, as well as a uh, U.S. ambassador who was killed. You know, very bad thing. Who are the good people? Who are the bad people? Um, how about the people who came out and lied and said it was about an anti-Islamic video, which nobody watched and nobody in Libya had any knowledge of, um, and then repeatedly told that lie to national audiences i.e. Susan Rice, who's now a national security advisor, who is a liar because she got on four shows and lied. That's why she was not confirmed as Secretary of State. Uh, you know, that was that was just the way that was. She's a liar. Hillary Clinton even said that the when the uh, when the families called her out 
and said, no, you said it was about a video. She called them liars. The family of the pe families of the people who died, she called liars. Now I ask you, who are the good people? Who are the bad people? Then we go to 2015. We have a businessman in New York declares his candidacy for president. And immediately a couple of things happen. Number one, a dossier is funded by his likely a political opponent and it's all fake but it's used to get FISA warrants in a secret court that is set up to protect us from terrorists and then spies are put in his campaign and he's being monitored his campaigns being monitored there's spies uh, put in his campaign I ask you who are the good people and who are the bad people based on those actions who are the bad people the next the next thing is Obviously, as the campaign ramps up and then Donald Trump wins, there is a conspiracy in the weaponized FBI and the weaponized Justice Department. And it's Andrew McCabe, it's this Lisa Page, it's all these all these dirtbags. Uh, I even forget what the other guy's name was. He was such a such a deplorable creature. Strock, that was it, Strock. You know, people like this, they, they were basically plotting against the duly elected president of the United States. Now I ask you, who are the good people? Who are the bad people? And as part of that, several people were were basically harassed and blackmailed. General Flynn, the national security advisor, was blackmailed into admitting he did something which he did not do, admitting guilt for something he did not do, because they threatened to go after his family, and he knew he could never withstand a Justice Department mobilized and an FBI mobilized against him. So he pled guilty to something he didn't do, that he was not guilty of, to spare his family. And, and in fact, he's, he suffered incredible financial loss to that. Now I ask you, who are the good people? Who are the bad people? Um, do, do good people blackmail public officials just to harass them and get them out of office? You know, I think that's, that's hideous. Uh, we go from there to the phony Russia investigation. And in Nancy Pelosi's own words, and this will come back later, we have to investigate it to find out if there's something there. Okay, so they do this investigation. And the guy they put in charge is this, I, I assume he's senilic, this Robert Mueller. Um, he's Inspector Cluzo. He couldn't find his backside with a six-man search party. He does this special prosecutor investigation, and, and you know what? He comes up with nothing. And when he's testifying in front of Congress, it's clear he doesn't even know what's in his own report. He doesn't even know. I mean, there's clip after clip after clip where they, they, they ask him about something, and he has no knowledge of it. He had absolutely no idea what was in that report. And, and it turned out there was nothing there, so it's, it was phony. Then they turn out with a phony impeachment. The phony impeachment was, well, Donald Trump, you know, was, was pressuring these poor Ukrainian people, these poor Ukrainian government officials to get dirt on Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, who by that time had been kicked out of the military for drug abuse, for drug abuse as an officer, nonetheless, a naval officer, he was kicked out. He was going to be a jag. They, they went through some special thing. It's not like this guy wasn't Admiral Halsey. You know, this, this, this guy was not Chester Nimitz. This guy was going to be a military lawyer. And, and really, the only reason to do that was probably to pad his resume. <clears throat> but anyway, Hunter Biden is getting all these this kickback influence peddling job where he's getting 50 or $60,000 a month from a Ukrainian energy company, which is probably living in some way off U.S. subsidies. So, you know, they want to investigate that. Well, Joe Biden had threatened to pull, when he was vice president, threatened to pull all the military aid away from the Ukraine if they didn't fire the prosecutor who was looking into this company, among other things. That's okay. But when Donald Trump is basically trying to check this out, with, and it's just a phone call. It's not like he was, you know, twisting their arms or anything in person. So, in, in this phone call, it's turns out that there's nothing there. He did nothing illegal. And we all know, presidents... And heads of state sometimes have to talk tough to each other. And he was, Trump is a tough talker. There, there's no two ways about that. So we have the fake impeachment. It goes away. And then we have the coronavirus. 
and the Democrats lie about the coronavirus. And in fact, every Democrat-led state, California, New York, and, and there are others, has screwed up the coronavirus thing. Andrew Cuomo, and he's, he's now finally being questioned on it after this is known for well over a year. Nobody wanted to do anything before the election. Cuomo put sick people in rest homes, the most vulnerable population. So he put sick people with the most vulnerable population and killed thousands of them. He killed thousands of elderly people who cannot defend themselves. That is heinous. And California just is screwed up. The governor goes to the French Laundry restaurant, a restaurant where you or I could probably not get reservations, nor afford. <laughs> I couldn't even buy an appetizer there. Yeah, I'd be one of those guys. Who, hey, can you bring around that little that little basket of crackers that I can eat? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so none of us would, you know, none of us would go to the French Laundry. He goes there, disregards all the protocols, and yet, and yet thinks that that's okay. He he does that. So. They screwed up the coronavirus thing. Then they lied about it. They lied. And in fact, we only have a vaccine because of Operation Warp Speed. And in fact, all the immunizations that Biden is now taking credit for, of course, anybody with a brain would know that was all basically put in motion, set up, and was under underway, you know, being executed by Donald Trump, even after he had, quote, lost, unquote, the election. So Donald Trump never stopped serving. He never stopped doing the right thing. But they lied about it. Then we come to the, the coup de grace of this whole thing, which is probably the worst election we've ever had in this country's history. There's no transparency. There's absolutely no confidence it was a fair election. And in spite of all kinds of evidence, uh, and going back to Nancy Pelosi's words, her words that you got investigated to see if there's something there. Of course, nobody would investigate it. Of course, no court would touch it because no court wants to be the people who try to or say there's a grounds to overturn a U.S. election. They just don't want to do it. So therefore, a whole bunch of us, millions and millions, tens of millions of people don't believe that that election was fair and that there's all kinds of evidence that proves that it was not and that battleground states were manipulated. Now understand this, the defense they use is, well, but Joe Biden won the, um, he won the popular vote. Joe Biden will, the, the Democrats will always win the popular vote because they've let so many illegals into California that in fact, um, they, they basically, Biden wins a, a a state that's got 30 to 35 million people in it, Biden wins that by two to one. He will always, the Democrats will always win the popular vote. That's why we have the electoral college system. So anyway, this, this election is, if it's not rigged, there are sufficient irregularities to cause tremendous alarm. But the Democrats being the, you know, who are the good people? The good people are the ones that show that basically want this investigated, want this checked out. As was, you know, like other things had been checked out that I previously covered. But instead, they're told, hey, forget it. You know, you, you lost. Go away. You know, F you. You lost. Go away. So we have a, on top of all of this, we have this rigged election. We also then, when we have a, a um, protest at the Capitol, okay, it turned, it turned violent. It turned raucous and violent. We know, we know for a fact, several things that they're not really telling you. We know for a fact that that woman was murdered. I mean, she was shot through a glass window. Oh, okay. Uh, her name is Alicia Bubbitt. And she, she was shot. Face it, she wasn't armed. And she wasn't constituting a, a life or limb threat. She was murdered. That's, that's murdered. I mean, there was no life or limb threat there. They said a policeman had been murdered by Trump protesters because he was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher, hospitalized later, and died. That is not true. They think now, his mother even says, that he had a blood clot and a stroke, and it wasn't related to this capital deal. This just happened to be, it happened to be like there were two or three people in the, the crowd that died of heart attacks. It's very unfortunate, and nobody likes seeing it. But that's really what it was. 
we also know that Antifa was involved. Antifa had people in there and they were doing a lot of the damage and breaking things down and inciting the riot. Are they completely 100% to blame for everything? No, but they were a huge contributing factor. So now they want to portray all of us as bad people because the right to protest. Now, when mobs of people are burning places like Kenosha and you know St. Louis and everything else, well, that's their right to protest. You know, we have these fools who are standing in front of burning buildings saying the protest was largely peaceful. Well, the Capitol protest was largely peaceful. That's just the way it was, if you, if you use that as the definition. So who are the good people and who are the bad people? And that's something that you just have to, you have to look at all of this evidence and say, I'm not, I'm not really sure that the people in charge right now are the good people. And that's what I'll say there. Now, I will go to another point that illustrates just how div bitterly divided and how crazy leftists, liberals, and, and basically Democrats. I don't think there is such a thing as a mainstream Democrat. I, I don't think so. I think they've almost all have been, you know, radicalized well beyond what we would consider to be a middle of the road or a centrist type of person. Okay, they had the big freeze in Texas. 86 people died in this freeze where the power grid went down. A terrible thing, a really terrible thing. Um, and of course, those 86 people were obviously the most vulnerable. They were probably very elderly. A lot of them were elderly. A lot of them were probably the poorest of the poor. You know, it's, it's really tragic. 86 people is a lot of people. For a time, I lived in a town called Paradise, California. In 2018, a fire swept through it and killed 87 people. So this is a, this is a big deal. And even when I lived there years and years ago, fire was a big was a big hazard. But that's a that's a whole different story. So 86 people are killed. So we have this controversy comes up a little bit. There's this broken down, has been fifth rate TV actress named Marina Surtees or Surtis. Um, she was as part of this Star Trek fan franchise. And just to give you some quick background, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, years and years ago, when first of all, I, I always kind of liked Star Trek, the original series. When I was a kid, I'd come home from school. It was in syndication. It'd play at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. From 4 to 5, I could watch Star Trek, you know. Then go do my homework and everything else. So I, I used to watch that, and I liked it. Well, they put on a second show that was a lot more, even more preachy, and had more of a message, quote-unquote, than the first one. I never liked the second one, never really watched it very much. Watched it sometimes, but not very much. Um, a friend of mine wanted to go to one of these, it was called a Star Trek convention, and it wasn't the Comic-Con thing. It was this, people would just go there, and you'd listen to a, a presentation, and they had some vendors. I had nothing better to do, so I went. So I'm the tag-along. I'm like the wingman on this. And so we go to this thing and you pay like you pay like 10 bucks to get in and you know that was bad enough I almost left the door right there but that's all right I paid the money and we kind of wander around in there and um, all I could remember was I thinking it was like this is a like a gun show for Star Trek nerds you know because I had all the vendors set up and you could go from one and you know you see some guy you know <laughs> wearing his his 4x Star Trek uniform and when he bends over you can see the crack of his butt you know I mean it's all those kind of people you know selling all this junk you know models of the Starship Enterprise and all this other crap that's that is either going to wind up in the dumpster or at a flea market or a garage sale in like five years you know with like various pieces broken off or whatever so to get to the point of this the Star Trek, they, the part of this, part of this get together was you could see they, they always had somebody who was connected with the franchise there speaking. So when we were there, it was this same Marina Surtees who was thirty years younger and you know uh, still a member of the cast of the show and 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 all this. So they come out and they she gives this little talk probably for forty five minutes. 
You know, and it's all the cutesy stories. Ho, 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 it was so funny when somebody got hit in the face with a pie by accident. And how wonderful the producers are. There's no there's no real good backstage gossip like, I hate my co-stars because they're bastards, you know. Nothing like that. It's all, it's all this uh, sunshine and lollipop cutesy stories about the show. And then at the, the end of this, the end of this, the, the coup de gras is, you go to the end... And there's a deal. It's like, hey, if you'd like to meet, and and she answers questions at the end for like 15 minutes. So the whole presentation's an hour. At the end of that hour, she goes over to a table, and it's like, hey, if you'd like to meet Marina and get an autographed picture, all you have to do is fork up like 20 bucks, stand in line, and she'll sign a picture for you and say hello, that kind of thing. So uh, my friend had to do this. And I don't know where these pictures all wind up. I mean, that's something that, that's another question. So we stand in line, and I'm the tag-along, you know. And so, um, you know, we, we wander up there, and, you know, there's a picture of this this lady. And, and, you know, she says, oh, hello, how are you? And, you know, what's your name? And it's to best wishes, Bill, from, you know, Marina Surtees. And then she hand, while she's handing, while she's, you know, finishing writing off, she'll, how are you guys today? Da, 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 da. And we're like, yeah, you know, we really like your show, you know, all this. And, and literally, you know, you get about, you get about 15, 20 seconds. And then, hey, it's the next guy's turn, <laughs> or the next, the next gal's turn to get the autographed picture. And that's what it is. And for 20 bucks, you get a nice little folder, if I remember right. It was like a nice little folder with a picture signed by this lady in it. Um, you know, so that that is what it is. At the height of her career, she was she was a basically a, you know, person who had to hawk autographs probably to make ends meet. Well, this person now, all these years later, after all of this freeze business in Texas, 80-some people die, she gets on to Twitter and says, well, you people get what you deserve. You've been voting Republican. You know, that's what you get for voting Republican. And when normal people object to this and say, this is very, very, you know, cold, nasty, tries to she tries to backpedal a little bit, but it's not effective. She said, yeah, you haven't elected a Democrat in Texas since 1994. And it's like, well, there's there's plenty of Democrats in the state legislatures and other other things. So she doesn't even know what she's talking about. And you would think that this woman, who I actually looked it up on Wikipedia after she, after she said these things, her husband passed away in his sleep in 2019. You would think that a person who had suffered that kind of loss would be, wow, 86 people. That's like my loss times 86. That's terrible. You would think that she'd be a little bit more sympathetic and empathetic towards these people but oh no oh no it's like you you asshole republicans you deserve this and so this is this is particularly heinous but it shows a couple of things number one and here's the other thing with marina surtees she is i believe not even a u.s citizen (laughs) so she's not even a u.s citizen and she's moving one of the other little tidbits that that popped up when i when i searched the name after this controversy popped up she's moving back to england so what why possibly would you say something this stupid and inflammatory if you're if you're <laughs> basically cutting and chogying out of here you know she's she's moving out but i don't know why but but this shows you how hard left hollywood is it shows you that even down into the fifth rate crumb bum has been washed up tv actors how hardcore leftists they are it's amazing and and this is not an unusual situation i only bring this up this example because like i said i i was i was towed into this thing years and years ago and actually actually got to meet this lady and say hello to her um and and you know it's even it was even absolutely apparent then you know this was not grace kelly i mean she's not she's she's a a a very very nice looking person but she is not a great beauty she is not no one's ever going to go see a movie because marina Surtees is in it no one is even going to watch a tv show be, simply because she's in it you know she when it comes up on the talent end i mean she's she's a single a ball player and um, she's never going to get to the world series you know she's never even going to get farther than what she is and now at 65 years old she can't have any empathy towards anyone else so that's that's really that's really the hideous part of all that 
So that's the story. That is how hardcore left. And when you look at that and you look at Hollywood in whole, it comes back to the same theme. Who are the good people and who are the bad people? And I would say that somebody who says, well, you, you know, Texas, you got what you deserved because you're, you're a bunch of Republicans. So 86 of you died. I, w I would sit there and say that that's horrid because she doesn't even know the political affiliations of the people who did die. I'm more than willing. And um, I think a very safe estimate would be that it was not 100% Republican. It was probably probably even, you know, more Democrats than, than Republicans. Who knows? But who cares? Because it doesn't matter. So anyway, that's the political news. Uh, we'll get into some gun culture stuff. Uh, <clears throat> okay, first, have, have you looked at the latest Enrage TV Q&A? These things are getting progressively worse. I mean, last time it was some some gal um i can't even remember her name some silly some silly name and um you know she's on the q a she doesn't really know anything and just kind of talks this time they had some history dude and um so he and he cannot put together cogent thoughts or sentences so he's just babbling on and on i actually turned it off about halfway through i said i, I just can't listen to this normally i like listening to them because I, I usually can find out something or i can say well i agree with that or i disagree with that but i um, can't do it it just it's just terrible um you know that so the the q and a's for in range tv are definitely going down the drain i mean he would do better off just answering questions and uh, doing it himself it'd be boring but he could at least at least he could get through it okay the next one is uh vortex nation vortex nation puts out a podcast and vortex optics are pretty good optics um there's there's good good and they have some some of the lesser expensive ones but the, you know they've got a good name good industry name and they put out a podcast it's really pretty unfocused it doesn't Sometimes they go into some Milserp things and historical weapons, which I find interesting. A lot of times it's, you know, kind of the FUD, hey, you know, what's the best, you know, carbine cartridge for white tail, you know, and uh, that kind of loses me. But one of the things they started talking about were magazines. And because Vortex Nation is run by people who haven't been around very long, you know, they are, they believe in the ascendancy of the polymer mag, you know, the, the, um, P mags, you know, that's our big favorite, as opposed to the metal mags or, or heaven forbid, steel magazines. Um, so they go into this long diatribe about, you know, the development of semi-automatic guns, which they know nothing about on the military side anyway. And they talked about, well, you know, magazines were considered bad because, you know, they would waste ammunition. Okay, it's not true at all. What they, what they just said. There was a concern with ammunition consumption with semi-automatic weapons when they were first developed, but it had nothing to do with magazines and it had nothing to do with capacity. The problem that they found very quickly, and uh, Garand first found this out with his primer actuated rifle, is that when you have a, a battle rifle style cartridge, um, you know, 30 out six, eight millimeter, seven six two by 54 rim, 303 British, and any of those old traditional battle rifle cartridges. When you create a 20 round magazine for that, you've now created a hand weapon which is ungodly heavy and, and awkward. You, you just have. Um, the BAR got away with it because it was a an automatic rifle, squad automatic weapon, so it could get away with it. But even then, you know, when you look at the web gear and look at the size of a BAR magazine, it is it is it is large m14 magazines are not small but they're much more compact and better than the uh, bar mags so the the end block clip loading mechanism or the fixed magazines you saw on early semi-automatic battle rifles were out of necessity to keep the weapon somewhat somewhat manageable and not have them overly heavy you still had to shoot them prone so you couldn't have these things stick way down. There's a whole host of things that were um, that had to be taken into consideration. So, and if they had done at least five minutes worth of research, it took me. I timed it. I got out my copy of the Book of the Garand, and that covers early military semi-automatics pretty well, at least the development here. 
and uh, you know it's five minutes I, it, in five minutes I had it, the correct answers that uh, refuted their incorrect ones um, as far as are the RP mags better than other mags I, I don't think that they're that much better I mean they they're they're a different design and they work good what I don't like about them is I've never had one that really fell free very well. They always seem to have to, you have to kind of help them out of the magazine well when they're empty. Um, most of the uh, most of the metal mags, the GI metal mags, uh, will will fall away. You, you can help them too because they don't always um, completely free fall, but they they want to come out. They they don't want to stick in there. They want to come out. So I I actually prefer those for that that particular reason. Plus, they're lighter. They just they just seem lighter to me. I, I'm sure that there's somebody who's got a scale who's who's uh, put them both on there. But to me, the metal mags have always been fine. But that's one of the one of the weird things that you see. The next one was on a podcast called Handgun Radio, and about half their show, um, about half their show, they were trying to critique 22 target pistols. Which I know something about. I'm not a great expert, but I know something about them. And what these guys have never fired in competition. They've never fired any of these guns. They've never they've never participated in the sport, and yet they're they're and it's clear they're when they're on podcasts they're looking these things up on the internet and just going, wow, the Walther the Walther GSP that's interesting oh look at the Pardini da, 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 da. and Smith and Wesson model 41 blah, 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 blah. I mean they're babbling about it they're not even bringing up the fact that probably the best one on the market these days is the Ruger you know you put the the Ruger is is very 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 good gun very very good gun so but you know they weren't even doing a comparison or anything they were just like let's look at expensive 22 target pistols and then they're proffering like they actually know something about it, which they don't. They don't know anything about it. And I don't know why they keep insisting that they do. But, um, yeah, it's very, very bad. It's, um, you know, that this is the kind of garbage people just turn off podcasts when that happens. The, the other thing is the, the ones I've talked about before, the We Like Shooting and This Week in Guns. This Week in Guns, can, if they stay focused... This week in guns is pretty good because it really focuses on two A and the legal the legal aspects. They got one guy on there who's a lawyer and he he's pretty well versed in firearms law and and so he has some really interesting. kind of locker room joker boy listening to millennials babble back and forth and and all the rest of it. Um, you know, and it's just like, why would I listen to that? I don't know these people unless they're talking about guns. And when they do talk about guns, it's always some esoteric piece of garbage like the, uh, you know, Valhalla, you know, works has just turned out these new hand guards. It got M locks all over, you know, I just, you kind of look at that and you go, God, what am I, what am I listening to? It's a product I'm not interested in. It's a product that probably nobody can get done by another one of these little boutique manufacturers because everybody's throwing stuff on the and the AR the AR market you know to try to try to barbie them up so uh, that's that's there last thing is um, of course CZ has saved Colt you know <laughs> Colt has been bought by CZ and uh, you know, a lot of people are like, whoa, that's a great American company. Now it's owned by foreigners. Well, you know, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Um, Smith & Wesson for years was owned by a British company. You know, I mean, these conglomerates trade these companies around. It's, it's just the way it goes. But, you know, face it, a chimp could have run Colt better the last 30 years than the management they've had. Um, when you look at the most popular guns today, I mean, look at the most popular guns today, and they all were basically have emanated from Colt. I mean, the ARs. I mean, Colt should own the AR market. They should say, we are the original home of the AR. We're the ones who, who brought it to maturity, and they should, you know, they should have done what Brownells did, turn out a line of retro ones. They attempted to, but nobody wanted to pay 
3,000 bucks for their quote M16A1 clone when you can get one from Brownells for about a thousand dollars. Nobody, so you know, I, I mean, simple marketing would have told them that that was a no-go, and they thought maybe the Colt branding would would make a difference, but it does not. Uh, the next thing is. Um, Okay, so the AR-15 is probably the most gigantic market. They could be at the forefront of that with accessories, with cutting edge, everything. And they could have been making tons of money over the last 30 years with that. Instead, they basically have retreated from the market. And I guess they still sell a few now, but um, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, the next one, every, every manufacturer that's got capacity uh, seems to make a 1911. And where did the 1911 come from? You know, they don't call it the Colt 45 for nothing. Um, Colt should, and, and they haven't modernized their line in 30 years. I mean, the Colt 1991, remember that? The one that's got the plastic trigger and the plastic mainspring housing. Yeah, what a good idea that is. The guys I know who bought them, the first thing they did was swap out the trigger and the mainspring housing and put in metal parts. Go figure. But, uh, you know, the, the Colt Gold Cup hasn't been updated in a while. Uh, I mean, they've made a few little cosmetic tweaks here and there. But, you know, Colt should own the 1911 market. They are the home, like they are for the AR-15. They should say, we are the home of the 1911 design. And they should turn out a, a strict GI copy, 1911A1. They should turn out, you know, some really good target models, um, they should do a lot of different things. I mean, the biggest innovation they've, they've done in the last 30 years is what the Delta Elite, the 10 millimeter, which really wasn't all that successful. They never brought out a long slide. Other companies have brought out a long slide version of a, of a 10 millimeter 1911. But they should own the 1911 market and they should have, and they could do it with probably four, four basic models you know, that would have, you know, upgrade, you know, there would be the, you would start with the 1911A1GI type gun, like the one that, um, effectively like the one Car Arms makes, or the Tesis one that's, that's there, you know, the, the strict GI gun that looked just like the GI gun for people who, who want that historical looking gun, all the way up to, you know, some really nice gold cups, you know, they could keep the gold cup moniker and really put that on some target grade automatics and, and go. That would be what I would do if I were them. And the last thing is, I know cowboy action shooting has probably reached its zenith and is probably, probably on the decline, but you know, the single action market and Western guns are still extremely popular. So you would think Colt would have said, we are the home of the single action army. We will make this on more than a custom basis. And we will we will turn these out. And even if and, and turn out some more moderately priced ones that could compete with the Italians. And I know they tried this with a Colt Cowboy, but that was a piece of junk. They actually have to put some thought into engineering into these products and make them the best. The last thing I would do if I were Colt. The last thing I would do is I would bring back the Anaconda and the Diamondback. So you would have in production the King Cobra, the Anaconda, the Python, and the Diamondback. And how awesome would that be? And bring them out. Like, who doesn't want? Wouldn't it be cool to have a stainless steel Diamondback with a two and a half inch barrel? I think how awesome that would be. That would sell. That would sell like hotcakes. Um, people are scarfing up the pythons like crazy. An anaconda would sell would sell well. Um, you know, bring bring these out. Smith and Wesson sells buckets of revolvers. Colt could do the same thing. So they've been saved from oblivion by the uh, by CZ, and you know CZ produces very high quality guns. So maybe maybe we'll see it. Maybe we'll see some of the Dan Wesson revolver influence because CZ owns that. I don't think they produce them now, but, you know, we may see some good things coming out under the Colt name. But it's a shame. They could have, uh, they could have done it for themselves and been a lot more successful. Okay, we are now going to go into the most popular and my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. 
Okay, let me go through this. The first question is, what is a US model 1909 Colt revolver? And was it used in World War I? Um, the second part is a little easier. I don't believe it was. It was probably used here in the States, but I don't think they went overseas. Or if they did, it was an individual, um, probably an officer carrying it over. Uh, the 1909 was a Colt New Service, which was the same as the uh, Colt Model 1917. The 1917 was derived from the New Service. But basically, um, early early 1900s, the Army's running out of revolvers. Um, they had a few of the old Colt single actions that had been, uh, uh, you know, kind of shortened and re-arsenaled and had cut down to five and a half inches. They had some of those, but hey, they weren't going to buy any more single action guns. They had the Colt, um, you know, double action going all the way up to the Model 1901, you know, the 38, the one that everybody hated because it was in 38 Colt and it wasn't powerful enough. They weren't going to buy any more of those. So they were pretty set on 45 caliber. The quickest thing they could get were new service revolvers in 45, what we call long Colt or 45 Colt. So they bought a bunch of those and they used them as a stopgap until 1911s became, became, you know, widespread. And so I imagine they were used probably up until, oh, 1915 or 19, maybe even as late as 1916, because we weren't in the war then. But they, they really weren't used for World War One. They're great revolvers. After their military service, they were kind of passed around the post, you know, because they were, were still worried about people robbing trains and stealing the mail. Um, you know, the postal department had them, and and a few other few other uh, branches of government inherited these these pistols, uh, but they were not used in World War One. And as far as I know, they were not used in World War II. But they're a very interesting and a very rare variant of a, uh, of a U.S. military revolver. So that is the Model 1909. And they are fun to shoot. They are a big, <laughs> they are a big revolver. So uh, as a matter of fact, as a side note, the cartridge it got with it, they, it could use regular 45 Colt or what we call long Colt ammunition. But the military actually um, took that cartridge and put a little bit bigger rim on it to help with extracting and everything else. And so some of those um, those cartridges will not work very well in a lot of the other firearms that were designed for 45 cold because they uh, you actually have to skip every other chamber because the rims are just big enough so that they interfere with each other so in a single action design they interfere with each other so that's uh i i think the only gun that would be an exception to that would be something like a freedom arms or a ruger probably a ruger blackhawk because they're they're slightly larger than a colt single action but anything the size of a colt single action the 1909 45 caliber cartridges um, probably don't work in. So there you go. So if you find some weird, if you're at a gun show and you find some weird 45 caliber cartridges that are U.S. military, um, they they were designed for the 1909. So that's the that's the story on that. Okay, let's go to next question. What is a Vopo Luger? Okay, the Vopo Luger. The Vopo was the East German police, the Volkspolizei. And as you know, East Germany was a police state. I mean, everything East Germany did, everybody was spying on everybody else. And But they had to have regular police, just like everybody, just like every every country does. After World War II, uh, you know, the, the Soviet occupation zone, which later became East Germany, you know, when it, when it came to the when it, when it came to the realization to everybody that, hey, guess what? We're not going to have a unified Germany after the war. It's, it's you know, the, the allies, the victorious allies were never going to agree. So the eastern portion, the Soviet occupation zone became East Germany. And they needed police and border police. And, you know, they, they, they need all those functions of government they needed. And, and a lot of them need to be armed. So what they did was they took... They took these surplus weapons they had left over from World War II, all the, all the German weapons, 
and P-38s and Lugers were pretty, you know, they had, they had scads of them. They took them and they re-arsenaled re them because some of them were in pretty poor condition, as you would imagine. And they put, um, on the Luger itself, they put on kind of these reddish, Bakelite-looking um, um, grips. They, they basically force number matched them. Uh, they they assembled pistols from parts, you know, if the frame was unserviceable, but the, the top portion with the uh, toggle and all that and the barrel were still good, they would, they would um, you know, mate that to a new frame. So, you know, they're, they're kind of what we would call mixed master guns and they were force matched and, you know, they were, they were functional and they kind of got that, that very, very dark dip bluing that you see on, on, um, you know, the post-war Soviets added on to the German weapons and, and other things that they captured. So we had all that. They had, they had all that. And they, they basically issued them out and they put them in new holsters. They looked just like the wartime holsters, but they were actually new manufacturer and they didn't have any of the uh, um, German uh, markings on them, you know, the Waffen amps and all the other stuff. So they were new holsters. Uh, the pistols themselves, a lot of them were denazified. Uh, they had, you know, Waffen amps and all those things were kind of ground off or, or uh, defaced so that you couldn't see them. Uh, for years, Vopo Lugers were considered trash. They were considered not the not the Lugers you wanted uh, for all those reasons. Now they're kind of collectible because they're a piece of Cold War history. And, and uh, by the way, these pistols were used probably from about the end of the war, you know, the late 40s up to about 1960 when they were replaced by you know, Makarovs and, and more modern modern pistols in East, East German service. So these things were kind of stuck away because communists, thank God, communists never throw away weapons. So they just stuck all these things away and uh, later sold them surplus. After the wall came down, they sold them surplus like crazy. So, And they were cheap. So if you wanted a Luger, that was a very inexpensive way to get a Luger. And... Uh, you know that was that was kind of cool but now they're more collectible so there you go that's that's how that works <clears throat> that is the vopo luger and there were p38s that were the same way i think they also probably had you know it was probably the gamut probably the pps and ppks also uh there were east german manufactured ppks you know so and pps so um you know they all those kind of older german the World War II German weapons kind of a lot of them got a little bit of a um, a life in the in the early Cold War part where countries were trying to reorganize and rearm and as stop gaps they would adopt these uh, now out of production German weapons. Okay, next question: Will nations or military organizations ever again develop their own small arms, or will they just buy off the shelf? Ah, that is a great question because I don't really know the answer. Uh, you know, the the state-run arsenal systems are effectively dead. They're just effectively dead. I mean, Springfield Armory is gone. U.S. military does not really develop any weapons anymore. We kind of put out a contract proposal to companies, and they kind of kind of tell them what they're looking for, and they come up with it. So. And it's kind of always been that way, but we always did have a main arsenal that at least did the the service rifle and and uh, that type of thing. So I think that um, I think that that system is gone in the United States. It's now all we if we don't buy off the shelf, we certainly hire private companies to do the R and D and and look at all that. So um, and if you look at the Sig Sauer M17 and M18. You know, those are strictly kind of off-the-shelf items with a few modifications. So, I, I think that uh, I think that in France the arsenal system's dead. I think in England it's pretty much dead. I, Soviet, the old Soviet Union, Russia probably still has some state-run arsenals, but I think they're privatizing them. So I think now that you know you won't see a country, a state arsenal developing weapons. It'll it's basically big companies now. It's the military industrial complex has taken all that over. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways that's really good because you get some great ideas. In some ways it's it's not so good because maybe 
this company in your country has developed this whiz-bang weapon that's really, really great, and now they're going to be looking to sell it to anybody else who's got the cash to buy it. So then you have to moderate and, and uh, you know, regulate them and in, in who they can sell it to and why and all the rest of it. So that is the that is the story there. It is It is now the private companies and no longer big government who are going to be developing weapons. Okay, next question. Why did the Marines adopt the shorter SIG M18 as opposed to the Army and Air Force's standard M17, which is one inch longer? Don't the advantages of a longer sight radius, wouldn't that be an aid to marksmanship and shouldn't that be important? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know why they adopted it. I, my own my own theory is cool factor that uh, I, I talked about this in an earlier podcast shorter barrel guns are seen as cooler that somehow that you know you are such a high speed dude that you have a requirement for this more compact weapon and therefore you know you're to be taken more seriously than a guy who's got the regular issue equipment so and and you see that all through you know kind of through history they they develop an infantry rifle and then a couple of years later or even simultaneously they're developing a carbine because somebody doesn't want to use the standard length rifle now way back in the old days that was because they thought they might still be firing in ranks and you know you have longer guns are longer rifles are better for that um nowadays though it's it's a lot of it is cool factor that if an Uzi is cool, a micro Uzi is even cooler, um, you know, on and on and on. So same thing with folding stocks, you know, um, folding stocks are kind of a drug that people think, oh, these things are so cool. But when they actually shoot it, they go, ah, this is really isn't as comfortable as the regular stock. Why do people really want this? Uh, so and if you need a and if you need a, uh, a case study in that, the HK-91 holy cow i've got the the telescoping stock or the retracting stock for that and man that's smarts and it doesn't get you that much when it's retracted it's you know there's my thing about about all that is is that unlike the adjustable stock of the m4 which you you know put on your equipment you adjust it and kind of leave it the way it is these ones where you're you know continually folding them up or, or retracting them to make them more compact of course, Murphy's laws being what they are, you know, you will never have that in the correct configuration. Um, when you need it to be extended, it'll be retracted, etc. So I think it's just cool factor. I would hope that they would have tested it and said, "Hey, there's no real difference between these two, so therefore the shorter one is a little, little more compact and a little, little better for our uses." Um, I would hope that they would. Maybe it's maybe it's because it's a more comp, a slightly more compact weapon that it's better for their embassy or shipboard duties. I don't I don't really know. I just don't tend to think that that much thought went into it. That it's cool factor, and everybody knows cool factor is what rules the roost these days. So I think that's why they did it. Okay, next question. What is the best piece of equipment you have used recently? Okay, um, I hadn't really thought about that, but I would say gun-wise, uh, the SIG P210 target, which I've talked about before, um, it's, it's outstanding and it is well worth the money. I mean, if you've, if you've got the cash right now and you can get a bead on one of these, um, it's probably smart because they're going to quit making them at some point in the future, I just don't see that there's going to be a market for a single stack target nine millimeter once the people who want a P210 have have purchased them, and it's going to just go up on the secondary market. So even if you just buy it and never shoot it, just keep it <laughs> keep it all original. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's going to be a better, a really good investment, and it's just a joy to shoot. So I would say that's it. Uh, I can't speak for the carry model that's got the fixed sight. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's kind of expensive though for a fixed sight nine millimeter, but I'm sure it's pretty. I'm sure it's really accurate and a good gun. So, uh, both of those guns, I would I would say that uh, they they're good. But my experience is with the P210 target. 
I still really like my uh, Walther GSP. I've been using that. I've been kind of sloughing off the last couple of weeks, but I've been using that and uh, uh, really enjoy it. Really helps my pistol shooting skills. Just a fine piece of equipment. So I like that too. Uh, uh, spotting scopes. Still like my Vortex spotting scope. I think it's a really nice scope. It's big. It's nice. It's fun. Um, does what it needs to do. So that's a good thing. Uh, the ah, here's another piece of equipment. Not shooting equipment, but it's clothing. Um, I bought one of those Gorka four uh, suits. It's I don't know how authentically military it is. It's supposedly a Russian military suit. I don't know how authentically military it is. It's kind of old school, very tightly woven canvas. Um, it has both, uh, and it's, I think, of like 130, 140 bucks. Um, you know, you get an Amarac and you get pants with it and you get some little suspenders to hold the pants up because that's that's important. Uh, but it's a very, very good piece of equipment. Really like it. Really think that uh, uh, it's very, very well made. Very, very excellent materials. One of those few bargains it's, you can still find from behind the old iron curtain, you know. So I would say that that's, that's been a very pleasing. I used it on the uh, Red Dawn Kansas shoot. Um, and with really, I just wore long johns underneath it. And man, I was I was fine. It wasn't that cold that day, but I was I was doing okay. And I've worn it in in colder weather, and it's been great. So um, you know, and it's old school. It it is you know kind of canvas. You can treat it with uh, Camp Dry or Scotch Guard, and and kind of keep it from soaking up water. It's it's really nice. But uh, it's nice to a lot of these newer fabrics. I, I've never really been a Gore-Tex fan. Um, I like I kind of like some of this stuff better. I mean, it's not not that I'm old fashioned, but kind of when you compare the two, you say, yeah, I see the real advantages to this. That's there's a there's a lot there. So that's really what uh, those are three pieces of equipment I can think of right there. And um, all right, let's go to the last last questions. Do you know how to make your own percussion caps and how to mill black powder? Um, the instructions are out there. I won't say that it's a good or a bad idea. You can buy the equipment to do that, and uh, the materials to do that are, are kind of simple. I would, I would say though, unless you're a very experienced shooter, I would stay away from that. Um, you know, I, I think you can still powder doesn't seem to be too much of a problem, even in this current environment. So. I would say that if you need black powder, buy it or buy the substitute. The substitute that I like the best is 777-2F. And it's very good, very accurate in, in uh, cap and ball pistols. And I'm sure it's just fine for uh, um, black powder cartridge rifles. But there are a lot of good um, substitutes out there. I would, I would use those if you can't get the real black powder. Um, trying to make your own it does have a certain amount of risk to it not very much but a certain amount um, you know and it's one of those things by the time you buy everything you need and get it set up you could have bought a supply that's probably gonna last you <laughs> as long as you need it to last so that's kinda how I would do you know a pound of of pyrodex will last you a while with a cap and ball pistol and um, you know, it's it's 20 bucks as opposed to all this other stuff that you do. Uh, some other good news, though, uh, as far as do-it-yourselfers go, uh, you know, I, I was lucky. I, I ordered a mold, a Lee mold on Amazon because I wanted a, a 454 mold. Um, well, everybody's sold out, of course. And I, I go to even places like Gunbroker and eBay, and they want three or four times they want like $80 for a mold that costs $21.95 MSRP. So I just ordered one on Amazon and I said, hey, whatever gets here, gets here. If it's the summer, I mean, they're, they're still obviously making them. What, whatever it is, whenever it gets here, it gets here. Well, shoot, it got here uh, two and a half weeks later and uh, boom, it showed up. And I mean, I, I paid the MSRP price. I didn't pay the uh, 
the exorbitant ripoff price. I could probably flip it on Gunbroker and make some money, but that's not how I roll. So I don't roll that way, and I won't roll that way. So anyway, just to uh, just to make it quick, uh, got it. Uh, I notice Amazon is now saying, hey, this is now not available, and we don't know when it's going to be back in stock. But, you know, sometimes it just pays. Go to Amazon or one of these places. If they'll let you back order it, back order it. Eventually, these things will get filled, and, and uh, you won't have to pay the scalper's price. I was just was just aghast. There was a a 457 single ball mold that was on uh, on eBay and it was going for like 50 bucks. And I'm I'm sitting there going, that's outrageous because the single ball molds they haven't made in a while. They're all doubles, so they've been making doubles now for. So this mold is probably well, it's it's old. It's let's just say it's 30 years old. And when they were making those. Um, the MSRP on that was probably 12, 12 or 13 dollars, you know. So it's, you know, you can get, and, and it's used. And I mean, it's used. Um, so you can get ripped off out there. So you got to really be careful as to, uh, as to what's happening. So anyway, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that does tell you like it is. Uh, again, if you have any questions, any comments, or anything you want to get to me, you can always send it. You can leave it as a comment on Podbean, which is our our major carrier, or you can email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And uh, this closes out episode 95 of Old School Guns. So... Old School Guns, out.